You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dwayne. I'll be reading for um, Acts 28, 11 to 31. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so, we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have been asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed from after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to these people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For these people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and see and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. These are the true words of the living God. Good morning. Let's try that again. Can you guys hear me? Clearly? Ah. Just a shout out to the sound guys and to Pen Pen in the back, without which we would not hear and see the gospel. 
All right. Good morning, ECP family and dear friends. And a special welcome to you if you're visiting for the first time today, this morning. I'm James, and I'm deeply honored to share God's word with us today. Our passage for today is Acts 28, verses 11 to 31, the final passage in the Acts sermon series. And my title for today's sermon is Embracing God's Kingdom. If you haven't been tracking with us for the past few months, we've been following Paul's journey as he journeys through the second half of the book of Acts. He's been preaching the gospel, he's traveled to Jerusalem, he's gotten arrested, stood before numerous trials, been imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. He's then made his treacherous journey to Rome, been shipwrecked along the way, and then he's been given a beautiful three-month sabbatical on the beautiful sunny island of Malta, along with 275 other guests which include criminals. Which reminds me, if you've ever been tempted to book a winter flight ticket to what is meant to be a sunny beach holiday, that's exactly what Sarah and I did in our early marriage years when we had very little money. It is definitely not a good idea. In any case, Paul sets sail from the wintry, cold, rainy beaches of Malta, once again for Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And in the beginning of our passage, in verses 11 to 16, Paul finally concludes his long and arduous journey and lands in Rome, and it is here that we pick up in his story. I've got three points for today's sermon, and the three points are, firstly, God's kingdom embraces all sinners. Secondly, God's kingdom entreats sinners with a warning. And thirdly, God's kingdom is embodied in his king. Let me begin with an intro by asking you, and I'll give you 10 seconds to have a think. How would you complete the sentence, when in Rome? You know the phrase, right? When in Rome. I, I don't want to complete it for you, you know. <laughs> the intentional disciples among you might be thinking, oh, when in Rome, do as Paul does, and rent a stay-home notice hotel for two years and order grab food. For me, my first thought was being a foodie when in Rome, get an espresso and definitely look out for some gluten-free spaghetti carbonara. Perhaps the avid travelers among you might have thought when in Rome, meet up with those cool people you met on social media and go to the Colosseum and take some sublime pictures together. Or perhaps you were listening carefully during the scripture reading and you thought when in Rome, wear some chains and preach the gospel. <laughs> well, reading from our passage in verses 11 to 14, it says, after three months we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Raneum. And after one day, a south, spring, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so, we came to Rome. And so, we came to Rome. What an anti-climax. The understatement of the year. There's no food mentioned. There's definitely no sightseeing. 
And when we read further to the end, there's certainly no meeting with Nero Claudius Caesar. It's even more underwhelming when we realize that in verse 14, he's only really in Puteoli, which is like 250 kilometers south of Rome. Puteoli in present day would be part of the metropolitan city of Naples, but Puteoli was the main harbor for Rome at the time. Distance-wise, that's like docking in harbor-front ferry terminal when you really intend to be visiting Malacca. He only really reaches Rome in verse 16, where it says, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Imagine, imagine for a second that you're Paul, and you've been through a grueling journey, and you finally arrived in Rome exhausted, Yes, you've passed through Puteoli, you've had a mini church camp with the Puteoli cell group, and that would have been beautiful. You'd written several years ago, saying how you longed to see them, and they'd be telling you how encouraged they'd been, how much they'd been enriched through your letter, and how the local church has grown. You've probably been prayed for and fed, but now it's just you in chains in this small Rome hotel room with your mate, the prison guard. Who would you receive? Who would you like to see? Because Paul asks to see the Jewish leaders. And this leads to my first point, which is that God's kingdom embraces all sinners. Because this is where it gets interesting. Let's read verses 17 to 20 together. It says, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when he gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had nothing, nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. He called them together. He asked to speak with them. And further, in verse 23, it says that when they came to him in greater numbers, he expounded them the scriptures from morning till evening. I mean, the last thing I would do upon entering a foreign city would be to meet up with a local family of my relatives who had falsely imprisoned me, falsely accused and imprisoned me, and put me into prison, and have coffee with them and spend the whole day with them. Why welcome his estranged Jewish brothers? Has he not had enough trouble and persecution from them? Was it not a case of, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me? Was he not offended? that their blindness and hardness of heart had resulted in him losing his liberties and taking these costly, lengthy, life-threatening journeys like a common criminal? How had he forgiven them for their attempts on his life? I think you and I would have been understanding enough if Paul had had enough of the Jews. He could have welcomed just the Gentiles and preached and taught them or he could have chosen to devote himself to strengthening the local leadership of the local church. Or he may have had enough for the season 
and decided to write his memoirs. But no, not Paul. And he wasn't simply preaching first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, as if he was following some mission strategy handbook. No, this man so deeply and genuinely loved his Jewish brothers with a sacrificial love. It wasn't human love. It wasn't humanly possible. No, we know that he wrote in his early letter to the Romans, pouring out his great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his brothers, and that he wished himself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. What an incredible, profound intercessory prayer. No, Paul's heart and actions went to the very heart of God. He was expressing the unceasing anguish of God, a pale glimpse into the very sorrow that God feels for sinners in need of saving grace. It was God himself who had sent prophet after prophet to his people, called after them, spoke to them, culminating in the sending and the death of his very own son. What greater sacrificial love is there than this? And now God had sent Paul a reflection of his very own heart. Paul understood the heart of God for sinners because he understood how much grace he had first received, because he understood himself first to be the chief of sinners. And this is what the Jewish leaders missed. They missed the heart of God. They mistakenly thought that the kingdom of God was just for the Jews. And the irresponsible rejection of God lies in perfect harmony with the fact that God's sovereignty was undergirding their rejection so that the message of the kingdom would go forth to the Gentiles. Like Paul's former blindness and former way of life, they were also still blind to the fact that they were falsely accusing and persecuting God himself, as they were doing to Paul, as Paul had done to Stephen. They hadn't yet seen that they were the chief of sinners. But Paul could see. Paul could see that God's kingdom welcomes and embraces all sinners. Chiefs of sinners, blind and hard-hearted Jews and Gentiles, despised criminals, Roman guards, whatever nationality or race you are, whether you're uneducated or educated, whether you're a helper in a household or a head of department, the gospel isn't just for Gentiles. And it wasn't just for the Jews. And it most certainly wasn't just for Nero, Claudius, Caesar. Only Roman citizens get to appeal to Caesar. But all sinners can appeal to God. From all historical accounts, Caesar was a tyrant a mass murderer and an eventual persecutor of Christians, a persecutor of Jesus. He, a sinner, needed to hear the gospel, and from all accounts later, he did. Most commentaries suggest that Luke wrote the book of Acts most likely after Paul's trial with Caesar had finished, and that the outcome of the trial would have been well known. Luke could have made the trial before Caesar the centerpiece of his closing passage, after all, wasn't, Rome, wasn't Paul on his way to Rome to stand trial before Caesar for this very message? 
And yet Paul says himself in his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 4, it is a very small thing for him and his ministry to be judged by a human court. In other words, it's not important. Luke could have ended with a final victorious statement. The king of Rome, here's the gospel. But instead, he zeroes in on Paul speaking to those who have falsely accused and imprisoned him. In speaking to those whom he had the most reason to be offended and affected by. The message here is clear. When in Rome, Paul, like Jesus, embraces those who have sinned against him, who have sinned against God himself. God's kingdom welcomes and embraces all sinners. If you are here today and you feel that you're the chief of sinners, God's kingdom is for you. And if there's someone you can think of that has offended and impacted you, God's kingdom is for them too. This leads to my next point, which is that God's kingdom entreats sinners with a warning. Let me tell you a story about one of the most memorable nights of my life. After my friends and I graduated from university in the UK, 10 of us took a celebratory trip to the south of Spain for a week. We rented a beautiful villa up on a hillside. It had a swimming pool, two stories with multiple balconies, with amazing views of the coastline. Basically, it was heavenly. And it was going to be a phenomenal trip. On the very first night, we all packed into our two rented cars and drove the short 15-minute ride down to town for a dinner by the beach. The idea was to have an early night, early dinner, head back to the villa, and celebrate into the wee hours of the night. The only problem was, after dinner, we got lost on the way back. It was meant to be a 15-minute drive, but it felt like every time we hit a fork in the road, we were taking the wrong turn. Soon it got dark, and every landmark and signpost started to look the same. By the way, for you Gen Zs, this was in 2003, <laughs> before Google Maps was born. Eventually, after every time we got lost, after several hours, sorry, every time we approached a new fork in the road, all 10 of us would get out of the cars and discuss and debate which way to go. And this is 10 frustrated lawyers, by the way. At one point, around the 4 a.m. mark, one of the cars even drove off the road into a ditch. And it took all the guys almost an hour to lift the car back onto the road. Needless to say, we were exhausted, confused, lost in the dark, losing hope, and seriously longing for our heavenly villa. By God's grace, a roaming police car found us at around 5 a.m. in the morning and showed us the way home. We eventually pulled into our villa at 6 a.m. in time to see the sun rise. Why did I share that story? Because the message of God's kingdom comes with a warning sign. Let's read further in the second part of verse 23 through to 27. <clears throat> and it says, From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, 
and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say you will hear, but never understand. You will see, but you will never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Why is Paul suddenly quoting what appear to be harsh words from the prophet Isaiah? He began in verse 17 by calling these men his brothers. And in the same verse, he identifies with them by saying, our people and our fathers. And suddenly he's separating himself from them in verse 25 when he says, the Holy Spirit is speaking to your fathers. Why were these harsh words from an offended and argumentative Paul? No, friends, these were gracious words from a man who sacrificially loved them, given as a solemn warning to a people who were at a fork in the road and who were set on choosing the wrong path. These Jewish rulers were hearing but not listening. They were looking, but they were not really seeing. They thought they shared the same hope of Israel, a messianic kingdom and the resurrection of the dead, but they had in mind a different kingdom and a different king. Paul was trying to convince them of the kingdom of God and about Jesus. All the scriptures and the prophecies God had given to them all pointed to Jesus, but their hearts were set on a Jewish kingdom with its customs, with its religion, and its laws. They had no place for Jesus in their kingdom. And Paul was entreating them, don't go that way. Don't reject Jesus. If you do, your heart will begin to turn dull. In other words, the walls of your heart will begin to thicken and your disbelief of Jesus will slowly but surely lead you to a spiritual heart failure. The further you go down that road, the harder it will be to return. Don't go that way, says the Holy Spirit. Don't go that way, says the prophet Isaiah. Don't go that way, says Paul. Well, friend, you may ask, what is the right way at the fork in the road? And who is Jesus? And that leads me to my final point, which is that God's kingdom is embodied in the king. God's kingdom is not of this world, and it is seen not by human sight, but by eyes of faith. God's kingdom has a king, and he's been appointed king because he fully and perfectly embodies the kingdom. And he is the only one worthy to be crowned king. If you see the king, you see the kingdom. If you embrace the king, you enter the kingdom. And that king is Jesus. Jesus is the son of God.
He was willingly sent to earth, taking on our sinful human nature to embrace sinners like you and me. He lived a perfectly righteous life and was falsely accused, unjustly tortured, and killed as a criminal on a wooden cross so that he could take our place and by shedding his blood could satisfy God's wrath against our sin. He was despised and rejected by mankind, but God raised him to life from the dead on the third day, exonerating and glorifying him, and he ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And one day he will return as king to judge the living and the dead. God's gracious kingdom is seen in God's gracious king. And Jesus welcomes all to believe in him. And by faith, your sins will be forgiven and you will stand acquitted before God. His righteousness will become your righteousness. You become a child of God and enter his kingdom for all eternity. To better understand the warning that Paul quoted from Isaiah chapter 6, we need to look at what happened before God spoke these words to Isaiah. And this is what happened. The king of Judah had just died. King Uzziah was a good king. He began faithfully and righteously, but in his later years, he turned away from God to his downfall. And when the king of Judah died, whatever hope that Isaiah had placed in the human king also died. And it was then that God graciously allowed Isaiah to see the true heavenly king. He sees a vision of God sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This heavenly vision is so powerful, so present, so holy, so full of God's glory that Isaiah cannot stop himself from crying out, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees God's true King. And seeing the King immediately causes him to repent, to see his guilt, and it leads him to repent. God atones for his sin and immediately after sends him to the Israelites entrusted to proclaim the kingdom and this very warning. Paul has the same experience of Jesus. We know it well. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was on the road to Damascus, disbelieving Jesus. When Jesus appears to him from a light shining from heaven, Paul sees the risen King Jesus and he hears his voice. Another believer prays for him and the scales of blindness fall from his eyes. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He turns his life around and begins proclaiming King Jesus as the Son of God. This is what the Jewish leaders missed. They thought that God's kingdom was embodied in their forefathers, the patriarchs, embodied in their laws and customs, embodied in their own sense of moral good and self-righteousness. But God's kingdom, friends, is embodied in King Jesus. If you cannot look upon Jesus, if you cannot accept him as a person, 
as the very Son of God, if you cannot embrace the fact that He died for you as the criminal upon the cross, if you cannot accept the truth that His death was His grace of provision for your sin, guilt, and shame, you will not see the kingdom of God. Friends, if you don't know Jesus and you find yourself at a fork in the road, not sure which way to turn, perhaps you're exhausted or confused, perhaps you're digging yourself out of ditches, lost in the dark, losing hope, running on empty, I entreat you to look at Jesus. See King Jesus. Jesus is patiently waiting to welcome you. And if you wish to speak with someone after the service, please come and look for Eugene or Aidan or myself, and we will be more than glad to talk and pray with you. So, to all the saints here at ECP, you might be thinking, <clears throat> I'm embracing Jesus, I'm regularly confessing my sin to God and to others. How do I embrace the kingdom? We embrace God's kingdom by embracing sinners and by being entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel. Embracing sinners is hard. It can be challenging at times. But embracing God's kingdom means we see the sins of others. And rather than push us away, God's love and grace draws us to them, to embrace them, to entreat them against disbelief, to encourage them toward belief in Jesus. You can't warn sinners without embracing and loving them. Embracing and loving them sacrificially enables you to entreat and warn them rightly. Sometimes, Embracing sinners means you end up wearing some chains. And by no means am I referring to real chains or anything likened to it. If you are suffering from any form of abuse or violence, please reach out to get help and please let us know so that we can help as well. No, sometimes embracing sinners means you end up wearing figurative chains. They could be chains that hold you back or chains that hold you down, chains that impose on you, or grate on you, or just wear you down. Maybe even chains that hold you, maybe even chains that hurt you, or falsely accuse you. It could be a difficult colleague. It could be a difficult relative. Oftentimes, it's our worst relationship that reveal our need for God. So let me just pause for a moment and ask you, is there someone that God brings to your mind? Is there someone God is encouraging you to embrace, to love sacrificially, and maybe even to entreat or encourage? Embracing God's kingdom also means we become entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 to 17, if you want the reference, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. 
but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Luke begins the book of Acts by recording that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared alive to his disciples for 40 days, proving his death and resurrection through his healed wounds, and that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. Christ's work of proclamation did not finish at the cross. The message of the kingdom that the Father had entrusted to Jesus did not finish at the cross. And it did not finish at the resurrection. Jesus continued to be entrusted with the message of God's kingdom. Luke then concludes the book of Acts in chapter 28, verse 31, by recording that Paul welcomed all who came to him, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God, and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. <clears throat> Jesus entrusted Paul with the stewardship of the gospel. Luke's story in Acts is not about kingdoms of men and human kings. Luke's story is about the kingdom of God and how Jesus entrusted the message of the kingdom to his church and empowered them by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. Many Jews and Gentiles were converted and believed through the ministry of Paul in Rome. And his prison letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, and the Colossians reached not only the church of that time, but it continues to nurture and strengthen believers' generations across the world. We are the posterity of the church of the book of Acts. We are the church of today, and it is to us that Jesus has entrusted the message of God's kingdom. It is for this purpose that RHC has sent and planted out ECP. Jesus has sent and entrusted ECP. We are being sent and entrusted with a stewardship of the gospel. So as God entrusts you with the gospel, what is he calling you to do? Who and where has he called you to? For those of you who have walked alongside me in my journey, you know that seeing Jesus has led me here as I've grown in the conviction that I have been entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel and that God gives grace for my sins, my weaknesses, and my faint-heartedness. But it is not only about my journey, it is about your journey too. And it is a collective journey of ECP. As we stand on the brink of our first year anniversary together. So let's encourage one another to journey together. Let's encourage one another to grow together in embracing God's kingdom, in loving sinners, and being faithful with the stewardship that he has entrusted to us. Let's journey to Rome together, wherever that may be, following our King Jesus as he leads us and empowers us by the Holy Spirit and by his grace. Let's close in prayer.
God, all salvation belongs to you. You are the only one that turns hearts, that heals blind eyes. God, you are the one that has helped us to see our sin, to turn from our wicked ways, to see Jesus. You are the one that is healing us and setting us on the path of righteousness to see your glory. And Jesus, we see what you've done. Jesus, we see you. You, Jesus, are our King. And Jesus, just as you gave your life for us, we wish to give our lives back to you. Jesus, just as you embraced us, we wish to embrace you. And Jesus, it is such an honor that you call us and entrust us to love sinners on your behalf. It is such an honor and a privilege that you call and entrust us with the stewardship of the very gospel that you came for, that you came entrusted by your very own Father. Thank you for the empowerment and for the grace of your Holy Spirit as we move forth this day. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.